disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. running against Trump. I'm running to represent this district. When was the last time Democrats were this hungry? President Donald Trump is about as popular as Chipotle's queso. GOP lawmakers are stepping down. Activism is surging. Do the donkeys have enough stomp in them to take back Congress? Stay with us. Full disclosure is made possible by the support of Elwood Thompson's, our friends at the top of Carytown. I practice what I preach because I'm there pretty much every day, sipping their cold brew, having their morning glory biscuits and muffins and everything from the breakfast bar. Make your own sandwich, the Beat Cafe, at the corner of Elwood and Thompson's, hence the name, and at elwoodthompsons.com. Joining us in studio is Abigail Spanberger, Democratic challenger for the 7th District of Virginia in the U.S. Congress, predominantly in the middle of the state from Culpeper to Nottoway. It's currently held by Dave Bratt, the Tea Party insurgent who upset GOP power broker Eric Kanner in 2014. I believe that was considered the biggest upset in 100 years right before Trump somehow took the White House. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me today, Robin. Thank you for coming on short notice. I, I appreciate it. I've been noticing GOP Congress people kind of dropping out left and right. This week it was Daryl Issa in uh, San Diego. I mean, that's an entrenched person. If you're wondering and worried about a wave, this is a great time. I mean, whether you're Orrin Hatch in Utah, not that Utah is necessarily a swing state, but Ileana ross in back in my district in Miami, um, you certainly sense that there is this, there's this worry, there's this concern about one of these kind of revolutionary waves coming through a la 1994 and the old contract with America. Yes. We're, we're seeing a significant shift. And, and right here in the 7th District, the amount of excitement and energy surrounding this race is just incredible. Um, this past Saturday, we actually had our first volunteer kickoff. And on a, an icy cold morning, we had 83 people, a total of 83 volunteers come out for our first volunteer kickoff. So the idea that a year in advance of the election, we have that many people excited to get involved and volunteer is just unbelievable. And I think that's representative of what we're seeing across the country and what other districts are seeing as well. Now, it's been written about quite a bit that even though Barack Obama had a successful, uh, politically successful, you could argue, uh, two elections, obviously in 2008, which was peculiar because of the financial crisis, but in 2012 against Mitt Romney, the GOP had been very successful in terms of resting back something north of a thousand seats. You're talking about state houses, uh, governor slots, um, clearly the swing elections of 2010, and then you know coming back uh, in the midterm elections after uh, Obama's second time he won office. How do you compete against that? Because you would think from a gerrymandering perspective, that only entrenches the party. They've kind of figured out how to draw these districts through uh, state houses. Well, and I, I think that across the board, what we saw in Virginia in 2017 is that when motivated and excited and dedicated people step up to run and volunteers rally around them, and get out there and canvas and phone bank and connect with other voters that we can see shifts. And, you know, you're right about the problem of gerrymandering, which is prevalent here in Virginia, but also nationwide. Um, but even despite some of the districts being heavily gerrymandered towards one party or another, you know, what we did see in 2017 is that when um, voters are engaged and when people are out there with a strong message and clearly motivated to serve the communities, that we can make significant changes at the uh, state level and local level. Now, this seat has been held by Republicans, I understand, since 1971. Yes. I mean, that goes back a long way, you know, in, in terms of the convulsions of uh, the reinventions of both parties and the civil rights era. It was Tom Bliley's seat beforehand, right? That's correct. And what I never understood about it, what completely blindsided us, is what happened with Eric Kanner in 2014. I don't know if he can be studied enough. I mean, this is one of the most powerful Republicans on Capitol Hill, bar none. If you're a person in this district, you would think that, gosh, you know, this is somebody who's going to bring home the bacon. Yes. And yet the Tea Party insurgency came in in a way that I never, you know, I never gathered in his district that there was this much disdain for him not spending time here or anything. And yet a revolution happened nonetheless with uh, the Freedom Caucus and the, the Tea Party movement coming in. Uh, what was it in 2014? Correct. What was your what was your takeaway from that? Where were you when you saw those returns coming? <laughs> you know, it's interesting. And just a little bit about the seventh district. Since the 70s, we've been redistricted. So the the district over time, the the portions of 
you know, which counties are included in the seventh have changed significantly. And even back in 2014, we had different district lines. We used to include Hanover County and New Kent County. And in advance of the 2016 elections, those two counties were districted out and we gained uh, Powhatan, Amelia and Nottoway. But in during the 2014, uh, the primary, when Congressman Dave Bratt did beat Congressman um, Eric Cantor, I was actually in the process of moving back to Virginia. We were based in California at that time, and we were we arrived just a couple days later to do our house hunting trip to to buy a house back here in in Henrico County and to to move back. And it was amazing because I had the benefit of of landing a couple days after the election or after the primary, excuse me, and watching watching what was happening here locally. But I had watched the coverage of it from California and seeing my home district in the news uh, as much as it was out in California because of this tremendous upset was, was really interesting. Um, and for me, throughout the, the – since, since I launched the campaign back in July – People frequently want to talk about the 2014 primary and what happened. And across the board, there are Democrats at every event that we go to that talk about how they voted in the primary. You know, in in Virginia, we don't have – we're not registered with parties. And so you you can vote in the the primary of your your choosing and, you know, whether or not that was actually enough to to sway the vote. Who knows? Um, But it is such an interesting election when you look back just in terms of how much money was spent um, and and the fact that – that we would have such a significant upset is it was a tremendous one. Um, and so it, it is very interesting now to be on the challenger side of someone who was previously a challenger. It's 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 an interesting uh, race to to review and, and, and look at what happened. Now, uh, Congressman Bratt's ascendance predated Donald Trump's even announcement. Um, it's kind of this wild card, dark horse shot at the White House. A lot of people just thought of it as a publicity stunt. But then you did see, uh, you know, as Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and other areas uh, where there were pockets of people who delivered the Electoral College to Donald Trump. Is Dave Bratt looked at as kind of a reliable Trump proxy? And is that something you can even do? Like, for example, does it make sense for him to have Donald Trump come here and campaign on his behalf in places like Powhatan? I mean, where I used to see all the Trump signs. Either you are or you aren't. That's what I don't understand. Yeah. Uh, can you run away against the guy? Can you just be a kind of Tea Party with an asterisk guy, GOP, not Donald Trump GOP? Yeah. Wa- watching Congressman Bratt and his reliable defense and agreement with the president has has been you know pretty consistent since the president was the Republican nominee and and certainly after he was elected. And so there's there isn't a lot of room for him to run away from from the president, the president's policies or even some of the president's more um, controversial statements because he has so consistently been aligned with him and, and publicly supported him in a way that isn't necessarily consistent with what all um, with with what other elected Republican officials have done. Hmm. Abigail, tell me about your journey uh, professionally and how you came to this decision and, and where you are today kind of sitting with me um, in advance of a potential historic wave election this year. Yeah. So I moved around as a kid and, and we settled here in Henrico County. I went to Tucker High School just off Parham Road and ultimately graduated from the University of Virginia and moved overseas for a bit for graduate school. But my goal had always been to enter public service. My father had been in law enforcement. And I intended to follow his footsteps into public service. And that's exactly what I did after I graduated um, with my MBA. I moved to Washington, D.C. and began applying with federal agencies. I became a federal law enforcement officer, and I initially worked narcotics and money laundering cases in D.C. and then up, you know, up into Maryland was our territory. And I did that for a couple of years. And it was a tremendously interesting experience. It was a challenging experience. Um, and But I always knew that my... My love was on the foreign policy national security side. And so from law enforcement, I pivoted over to the intelligence community and I became an operations officer with the CIA. And that's under what was at that time the Directorate of Operations then the National Clandestine Service. Um, and as an operations officer, we were the people who were out there meeting with individuals who had access to information of value to the U.S. government um, in that role Operations officers 
recruit people to provide information back to the United States government and work with those individuals. Um, you know, a little bit of what you see in Hollywood movies. Uh, some of it's true and some of it's not. But, you know, we, I was meeting people on um, uh, in in hotel meetings and in car meetings and collecting information that was of significant value to the United States government with the purpose of allowing the president, policymakers, uh, the military, our diplomats and Congress to make really informed decisions about their engagement in the world, our country's engagement in the world. And I lived in D.C. for a time with that job. I was based in Europe for a time. I was based on the West Coast. And in 2014, we got to a pivot point. We were starting to apply for our next jobs. Where where would we transfer with my job um, within CIA? What were some of the the postings that, that were possibilities? And my husband and I were talking with our daughter about where we might go and really excited about all of the different options. And our daughter said, well, what about Virginia? And we said, well, with mommy's job, it, you know, maybe it's Germany, maybe it's Costa Rica, all these exciting possibilities. And she said, but, but everybody we love is in Virginia. Why wouldn't we go to Virginia? And it was a turning point moment for us because I had realized that for all the time I had spent investing in public service and serving the country in a way that was incredibly valuable and incredibly fulfilling to me individually, we weren't really building out a community for our kids um, and we weren't investing in a community. And having grown up here in Henrico County, my husband's originally from here as well, we decided that for us, for our family, for what it was that we wanted long term, we did want to have that investment in the community. And so we moved back here in 2014 and I got a job in the private sector and we started really getting involved within the community and I became a Girl Scout leader and my husband became a soccer coach and we got involved with different advocacy groups and and that was the path that I began to find truly fulfilling in terms of building that that commitment to service, but pivoted towards community instead of at the national level. How, how great are your CIA chops? For example, could I parachute you into Caracas? <laughs> could you stage a coup <laughs> within 24 hours? Uh, I just yeah, I just handed it. I drew, I just published a book that kind of looks at the CIA's 19, <laughs> the stuff we used to do in Chile, in yeah. Iran in 1953. It seems like. Uh, th there was much more of an appreciation for kind of nefarious, covert things. I mean, you know, history with Argentina and other places where yeah. we go and, and uh, put our finger on the scale, as it were. You don't have to answer that question. <laughs> I do wonder, though, if you guys still have like like an alumni database where, for example, I invite you onto my show. Can you throw Robin Farzad's name into a CIA search engine? And my face pops up. I'm like, he's good. He's harmless. He's not Mossad. Uh, <laughs> Uh, no question was asked there in particular, but I do want to know about the Democratic Party because, yeah. I mean, this has to have been in their crosshairs. You perceive that there's this kind of a once-in-a-lifetime chance to do something like on, on par with like a 94, I think back to Newt Gingrich and that repudiation of, of Bill and Hillary after their first year in office. Yes. Who's running the Democratic Party right now? Like, for, is, is there someone who's kind of reached out and offered to take you under her wing, under his wing? I don't know if it's Bernie Sanders. I don't know if Joe Biden's in the wings. I don't know if it's um, some combination of, you know, Kamala Harris and and um, uh, Kristen Gillibrand. I mean, that's the amazing thing to me. You have this kind of pungent unpopularity with Trump. I think he last clocked in at a 39 percent, <laughs> um, you know, uh, approval rating, yes. which is like a record low for uh, a year after swearing into office. And yet a lot of people would argue that the Democrat Party is even in worse shape. It's just rudderless. Well, I would uh, – and this this is my personal opinion. I think it's a time of rebirth, which might be a little bit hyperbolic. But, you know, frankly, where we are right now – so many people are engaging in activism, in political engagement for the first time. And so rather than the party – and, you know, I'm, I'm heavily involved with the, the local committee here in Henrico where I'm from and then with the, the, the various different committees across um, the counties within the district. I, I don't think that there can be a prescriptive – idea of what the Democratic Party is, because at this point, and I was I was listening to an excellent interview actually this morning with Congresswoman Sherry Bustos talking about it, it being a big tent party and people with variations, a, a commitment to to the goals of moving this country forward, a commitment to um, 
to providing opportunities to all of our citizens, a commitment to ensuring that people's lives get better and people's opportunities improve. Who is the torchbearer for that? This is what I struggle with. I mean, people are still hand-wringing over the Hillary Clinton experience last year. Yes, she did take three million more votes, but um, they could have done it differently. I mean, do you have, you know, is Tim Kaine filling that vacuum? The instant somebody realizes that this is one of the biggest trophy catches, the Virginia 7th, who reaches out to you? Who's the rainmaker? Who's the, you know, the internal uh, uh, person who's making sure that this is, uh, we're, we're truly competitive and we're institutionally backing her? I don't know who that is. You you may not like this answer, but I think it it has to be the people on the ground. It has to be those 83 people in Henrico County who show up on a snowy, icy morning to get behind a candidate. It has to be the people I'm going to see on Sunday at our volunteer kickoff in Culpeper and then Chesterfield and then Louisa. And, you know, I'm not 100 percent the party as a structure is important because I'm a Democrat and ultimately, um, you know, I'm, I'm part of the Democratic Party. But if somebody from Washington, whatever rainmaker it might be, says, yes, we want this seat in this state with this candidate, I think that's a recipe for loss. That's a recipe for disaster, be it in Virginia 7 or in, um, you know, any district across the country. I, I think we have to be looking towards what do people within districts want to see in terms of the leadership they're sending to Washington. But look at it institutionally. Wasn't Laura Ingram really powerfully behind Dave Bratt? Didn't you get a megaphone out of D.C. Yes. that gives you kind of some sort of multiplier effect? I appreciate the grassroots. Mm-hmm. I definitely do. And I think especially with things like what, what Obama did in 2008, um, uh, you know, the get out the vote people, even if you go back to the Howard Dean example, uh, the, the virality of it right now, the way you can use Twitter, the way you can uh, campaign and enlist people is more powerful than it's ever been. But there's still a bias toward kind of, um, uh, you know, Rainmakers coming in or big money makers coming in. I don't know if a Barack Obama comes here <laughs> or a Michelle Obama or who that person is. You kind of do need a rock star yeah. uh, person to kind of, you know, hit your caboose to. Yeah. And I, I, I think that we can look forward to seeing um, to seeing those sorts of uh, of people maybe coming to our district and getting engaged once we have a defined nominee. Um, and I, I think at this stage, it's most appropriate for the people of the seventh to say, this is the person that I want to vote for over Dave Bratt in November and, and to have it be really from the, the base up. And, and I'll say this, you know, looking at this district, the opportunity for a Democrat to win against our incumbent Congressman Dave Bratt is really going to be based on our ability to get people excited about this race and to get people motivated to go to the polls in November and vote. And that strategy requires that in endeavor requires that um, that I get out there now and meet people now and get people excited about this race. Um, and in that level of and it's an overused term, but I think it's the right one. That level of grassroots excitement is something that only the the candidate and our campaign can really get running and excited. And in terms of bringing in additional support later on, you know, I, I do hope to have um, support from from notable Democrats across the country. And I do hope that people really take notice of this race. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Abigail Spanberger. She's Democratic challenger for the U.S. Congress seat in the 7th District of Virginia. Um, we are talking about issues, the, the the difficulty of kind of resting control of a seat that was won through insurrection. Um, what makes 2018 so special, the potential for kind of a, a huge, massive blue wave to undo the gerrymandering and all the other things that have made it so prohibitively difficult for these revolutions to happen. Uh, talk to me about the issues. Uh, what do you kind of... Uh, what occupies your mind the most in terms of disagreement with this administration and uh, this GOP-led Congress? Is it foreign? Is it domestic? Is it a style thing? I mean, we right now are on the, sh- uh, the, the heels of the whole shithole comment. Yes. So that's going to be one of the you know, big time stamps on the uh, Trump presidency when he was discussing immigration from places like Haiti and El Salvador and Africa. Um, the bar has definitely been moved in terms of uh, discourse. Yes. It- my my interest, my my focus is really in a couple different places. So absolutely, there are issue specific um, concerns that I have with what's what's been happening with this administration, with this Congress. But at an overall level, 
you know, there's a lack of decency in the discourse that we see, such as the comment that that came out of the White House uh, just yesterday. Um, a, a lack of decency in the political discourse and also the prioritization of political expediency and party line politics to such an extent that it really gets in the way of our lawmakers ability to talk through decisions, to talk through policy and to reach any level of bipartisan agreement. Um, and I, I think, you know, the the way that our healthcare system has been so wholly politicized and the way that the House healthcare vote was pushed through the House of Representatives so quickly for the sake of political expediency and, you know, not even waiting for a congressional budget office score. Those are the examples of the procedural pieces that I think are really problematic and do not benefit the American people, regardless of your political affiliation. And then related to issues, you know, I have significant concerns about the status of our current health care system, the tax reform bill that was just um, put through Congress, and, and certainly our, our place on the national stage, international stage, the way that we see um, diplomacy through tweets and a, a general um, disengagement in the international uh, arena in, in a way that we've never witnessed before. I, I think these things are all problematic, and they're all things that I've been talking about uh, frequently on the campaign trail. Is there something that constituents in particular are ticked off about from a policy perspective? I can tell you there's been no shortage of complaining here about the lack of, of yeah. uh, health insurance availability. I believe Anthem pulled out. This was a big market for them here in central Virginia, and you have to beg somebody like a Cigna to buy an insurance policy mm -hmm. from them. They, they lead you back to the exchanges, but there's a lot of uncertainty over whether the exchanges will exist in perpetuity. Um, a lot of carriers, a lot of doctors just don't know whether to accept this insurance. It's not long for the world. Yes. Um, I, 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 I do at least sense from a kind of a perspective, you know, a, a you know, preschool pickup and, and second grade pickup of my, my son that this is top of mind for a lot of parents, a lot of our contemporaries. It is top of mind. It is something that at every event, and we've had 47 meet and greets across the district. So those are just events in people's living rooms where we sit down and talk to people. Sometimes a crowd as small as 10, a crowd as, as large as 50. Um, and every single time people want to talk about health care. And the concerns related to health care really do um, manifest themselves in different ways. It's a concern with the protections that are provided by ACA. So, um, you know, pre-existing condition protections or no lifetime caps or the ability to keep adult children on insurance through the age of 26. Some people are really concerned that, that these um, that these benefits might be um, endangered. Um, and for other people, it's it's more of the financial piece that premiums and costs, um, the premiums continue to rise, co-pays continue to rise, and there is a lack of certainty regarding what carriers will remain and, and what access to reliable health insurance people will have, an affordable health insurance. And, and those concerns are really consistent and in the rural areas even more so because there's an access there's an access issue there as well. And in a district like ours that does have, um, you know, heavily suburban areas in Henrico and Chesterfield um, and then a lot of more rural areas, this is a, a, a really significant concern that, that people have in terms of how can we have access to affordable quality health care and, and what, what does the insurance market look like as we keep seeing these changes. And of course, under the, the most recent tax reform bill, we saw the loss of the individual mandate and the expectation that, that costs will that the price will continue to rise is is a really, um, you know, well-warranted concern. And, and people are very worried about what, what's to come. What are your thoughts on single payer? I mean, I hear more and more doctors who come on the show who are at least resigned to the fact that if the system comes apart at the seams, that it this is as end tends toward infinity. This is where it's all going to head, like it or not. Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting because looking at we, where we are right now, as a candidate, my goal is to ensure that as many people as possible, that everyone has access to affordable quality health care. And that's, you know, full stop, my goal. Um, and, and in terms of how to actually make that happen, I think that single payer is a really great direction to go towards. Um, and... And I think that we, as a country, that it's increasingly a conversation topic um, and, and a goal that people express to me. Whether or not we are ready, if, if the Democrats take Congress in 2018 to fully move towards a single-payer system, that I'm not sure about. And, and I'll be honest, because to some degree, if we, well, to every degree, if, 
if we are looking to provide more stability to our healthcare system and we are looking to ensure that everyone has access to quality, affordable health care, I want to make sure that any any legislation we can reach really does have a significant amount of bipartisan support. Um, and, and ideally, in 2018, the Democrats will have control of the Congress. But I, I do hope that we'll be at a place where we'll be able to engage those across the aisle in the conversations um, and, and move towards a, a system that is more sustainable. And, you know, there's some solid proposals right now in the Senate for um, for a public option. And I think that's worth considering as well, in addition to whether or not we might be moving towards the path of, of a single payer system. It's a bit of a pop quiz for you here, not to make you nervous <laughs> or anything. But in your district, believe it or not, you have, according to... Um, I'm on Yahoo Finance right now. Okay. Uh, the mega cap company whose stock was the best performing in the market over the past 50 years. A dollar invested in this company and its predecessor in 1968 turned into $6,638 by 2015 with dividends reinvested. That's good for a 664,000% total return. That's 21% annually. Do you know what it is? Can I phone a friend? <laughs> no, you don't have a lifeline in this. <laughs> it's all Tria. Formerly Philip Morris, Phil the uh, biggest tobacco company in the United States. And I know it's a bit of a third rail to talk about because they throw a lot of money around. Yeah. But how, for example, does that make you feel? I mean, this was historically a tobacco town. Yeah. Uh, they are there. They employ a ton of people. And yet their regulatory future, they've historically had great relations with Eric Kanner and Tom Bliley and, and people behind you. Um, I, I just, you know, like to throw those wild cards around yes. every now and then. I mean, there's very much a new Richmond and an old Richmond, but nobody messes with Big Mo. I mean, the tobacco company here. What do you think? Um, you know, I I think that I think those are some incredible statistics for starters. Um, you know, this is a diverse community. This is a diverse workforce. We've got, you know, people employed within the seventh in in a wide array of industries. And from a, a candidate's perspective, I'm interested in learning about all of the different um, employers here within the district um, because they are the the lifeline and the lifeblood of so many of our constituents. Um, but we're also well, – no, this is kind of making you blush. <laughs> We're also we're also known as the cigarette smuggling capital of America because the taxes are so low here. Yeah, um, it's very cheap to go if you go up and down Broad Street and get cartons and cartons of of Marlboro Reds and you mule them to New York City. You can make two three times your money very easily. Um, and there's been an argument over whether this industry is kind of too powerful here. Is it undertaxed? Is is uh, is it not kind of right sized for where Richmond is headed? I mean, I throw wild – look, I throw curveballs every now and then. I wanted to see what you think about that. Um, you know, I would love to hear the answer of that of some of the some of the state legislators. Um, well, think about that as I throw okay. another one at you. It's less it's less pop quizzy, but <laughs> the Staples Mill train station here yes. is apparently the busiest in the state of Virginia. Um, it is it – is, I, I, I know a station manager at uh, the CBS station here who says every Thanksgiving he gets called from that train station manager and he says, please tell your guests to not use this station's parking lot. We are – we're bursting at the seams. And it's been kind of a hobby horse of a lot of people high-speed rail here in the United States. Imagine this area. How much would it arrive if you truly made an extension of the Beltway? If a place like Fredericksburg could kind of burst out to central Virginia. Do you have any thoughts specifically on high-speed rail? There's a lot of promise, but it's seemingly like a history of under-delivery. There's, there's a lot of promise. And I think, you know, my opinions related to high-speed rail would really flow back to what is the economic and infrastructure impact? You know, I, I think that at this point in time in our country, we need to be looking at what infrastructure projects could provide good, solid jobs, could help communities grow in new ways. Um, I have actually taken the train from Staples Mill, and I do know that the, the parking lot is always bursting at the same Well, scenes. a lot of people now tell you just use Ashland train station. And meanwhile, yeah. Ashland, which I believe is in your district too, that's where Dave Bratt, no, uh, Dave Bratt was a professor there. Ashland was in the district. Ashland got districted out in advance of the 2016 elections. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a kind of a moving target constantly. But Ashland's pushing back yeah. against high-speed rail and what it'll do to the area. And then people are talking about Spotsylvania. And uh, it's a very interesting thing, I think, because a lot of people are talking about uh, how the, the limiting factors are to an area's growth if it can't count on. Obviously, you can bump out 
64 and 95 ad infinitum. But if you don't have true uh, dependable rail service, can a, can a place really grow and keep up with the times? Well, and I think this is one of those those pieces where when we look at large-scale possibilities for infrastructure projects, be it here in Virginia, be it someplace else, you also do have to look at what the impacts are on the local communities. And, um, you know, where are there benefits? Where What are the pros? What are the cons? What sort of new jobs could come to a particular area if there were access to high-speed rail? What would that mean for people living here? But then there is undeniably an impact on the people who would see the high-speed rail go through their communities. Um, and, and what what does that mean mean to them? So, you know, overall, I think that legislators, when they are looking at large-scale infrastructure projects, need to be talking to local communities, need to be talking to local elected officials to understand, you know, where there can be federal investments or where there can be federal initiatives, what what is it that people locally actually, actually want? Because um, sometimes those things can be misaligned and sometimes they can be wholly aligned. It, it you know, it, it it's really... Um, uh, topic-specific or project-specific. Immigration has always been a hot-button issue, especially here. If you go up and down Broad Street, if you look at the service industries, if you go up and down the old Jeff Davis Highway, there are, you know, I, for example, I'll go to a restaurant. I'm a big foodie. I want to try a taqueria. There are people who will legitimately hesitate to tell you they're from El Salvador. I mean, even a person who looks like me, they're worried I'm going to hand them into La Migra or something. And now this is put into especially sharp relief with the president's comments and um, the debate over DACA and uh, you know amnesty for all these people who've been in limbo for all this time. How do you handle an issue like that that is red meat for people in the exurbs and in the country, but um, from an operations perspective, uh, you know the service industry here depends on a lot of uh, day laborers and immigrants who are not documented. I think there's a couple of things to decouple. Overall, we need comprehensive immigration reform, and you know. If elected, that is something that I would certainly want to be a part of those those conversations. When we relate it back specifically to to the the recipients of DACA um, and those affected by DACA, the the issue there is, you know, these were kids who were brought to this country by their parents. They followed all the rules. They did everything they were supposed to do. Um, they went to school. They entered college. They got jobs, and they're a part of our communities and they are a part of our economy. And so when we are looking at how to solve, how to adjust, how to, how to perceive our immigration um, process kind of moving into the, into the future, it, to me it is important to make sure that we're looking at the, the, those affected by DACA in the immediacy because those are adults and young adults who, who are pay, facing the potential of going back to a country they've never, ever known when when they were brought here as children, you know, and they they fell in, they became a part of this culture, a part of this economy, and they did follow all the rules. Um, and so I, I think that there is a there is a need to look at the the future and the fate of these members of our communities and our colleagues and our coworkers and our students, um, and 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 find immediate solutions and, and agreement. Um, it's so that they don't have to live with this level of uncertainty. Mm. You know, I'm looking at CNN. It says <laughs> uh, already, according to CNN, at least 29 House Republicans have announced they are retiring, running for another office, or resigning outright. Yes. They're leaving from all over the map, from southern New Jersey to southern New Mexico. The Democrats need to pick up 24 House seats to retake the majority from Republicans who've had control of the House since 2011. Um, you know, structurally speaking, this is a uh, this is not a this is not a black and white district. Like I don't understand how a person runs from you know left leaning uh, burbs, which has a lot of transplants from uh, Northern Virginia and New York and Long Island, and then go deep into you know the country where you used to see all the Trump signs and Powhatan and kind of gun carrying, you know NRA card carrying places, and have a sort of contiguous message uh, to to flip a district blue that's not been blue for almost 50 years that kind of boggles the mind. <laughs> well, I think it's 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 the exact opposite of where we are right now, right? So you had just talked about some of the different demographics and political leanings of the different portions of the district and we're currently represented by someone who's a very conservative Republican. And so um, our current representatives' policies are out of step with a lot of the ideology that we see in some of the more uh, suburban blue areas. 
Um, so I would make that argument straight away that we don't have well-aligned representation currently. And so it, it is time for a change. But looking at this district, what I find so fascinating about this district, and, you know, as you mentioned, we stretch from Culpeper all the way down to Nottoway and, and include rural areas. We include suburban areas. We are an example of what you see across the country. We have people in our in our district, which is relatively large, um, across all job sectors, across all backgrounds, all ethnic backgrounds, all original national origins, all job sectors, all educational levels, and it it is a great example of um, you know what what we see nationwide. And so what I what I love about this district is when I go from a more rural area to a suburban area, people are talking about the same things, but they just vary in in the manifestation of the concern. So healthcare being a good example, you know, in the suburbs, people might be worried about healthcare because they're predominantly worried about um, ensuring pre-existing condition coverage. In the rural area, it may be more related to healthcare access because the nearest hospital is 45 minutes away or because the volunteer EMS drivers are leaving the county because they can't find work um, and, and aren't there to be volunteers one day a week or one day every other week. Um, so there's these – thematically, the concerns are the same. And f- for me, I think that's really interesting to get out there and listen to people's concerns and, and listen to what these communities are talking about. Um, and and – and overall, that's what people want. They want someone who's listening to them. They want someone who's accountable to them. And that's, as a candidate, what it is that I'm offering. And I'm traveling across these counties and I'm, I'm traveling across our district and engaging with people and listening and, and you know, seeking to understand what it is that we as a, as a greater community need and, and how I can best serve the needs of this district. You and I are sitting in a studio in the heart of downtown Richmond, Virginia, which was formerly the capital of the Confederacy. It was a huge slave trading um, hub. And I wonder to what extent um, in in the wake of what happened in Charlottesville, people are buttonholing you here and pulling you aside and talking about our Monument Avenue, which has these statues to Confederate leaders, everyone from Jefferson Davis to Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee, and, and what you feel comfortable talking to them about. It's actually not a topic that has come up um, much at all. When I've been out in the communities, um, and, and we don't have any of the city of Richmond within the district, but when people are talking to me about issues pertaining to our history of segregation, our state's history of um, you know racial inequality, it's it's more that people want to talk about how can we ensure that all of our citizens have access to strong educational opportunities and job opportunities. The conversation pivots more towards some of the structural examples of kind of lingering inequality that's based on the history that we have here in the state of Virginia. Um, and, and and it's not specific to, you know, these um, these actual physical monuments that are remnants of this earlier time. Um, and, and so actually I haven't, I haven't gotten the question and, and, you know, within the city of Richmond, you know, I, I believe that the locality in the city of Richmond, which isn't in the seventh, um, should be the center of that conversation. But we remain an incredibly segregated place de facto. Mm -hmm. If you, you know, you go to churches on Sundays, if you go to pools in the summer, um, uh, schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, 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 so many people here after busing defaulted into this idea of putting their kids into private schools who don't think twice about paying 25, 26 grand a year K through 12 in order to avoid the public option. Yeah. Um, I, I think these are the things that are not getting talked about enough. They might in Richmond proper or in, in, in the, the, you know, where uh, the mayor who's African-American who's talked about it, our outgoing governor, uh, Terry McAuliffe has talked about it. I wonder... If, if, you know, the rest of the excerpts are coming to terms with this, but apparently not. Well, but they, they are, but it, the conversation's not focused on, like, the tangible issue related to monuments. The, the conversations are focused on um, the disparities in economic opportunity, the differences that you see in school suspension rates between um, minority students and non-minority students, the difference in graduation rates, the difference in um, incarceration rates, um, it, which 
you know, frankly, is is an issue nationwide as well. So th- those are the those are the ways that people are talking about the the history that's you know in some ways specific to Virginia, but of course, um, you know, present throughout the country. Um, and and those are conversations that that people want to have. And I've been at a variety of different community meetings, and be they. Um, you know, specific to particular populations and, and specific communities, there are various concerns that exist um, a- across the Seventh District. Be they related to um, you know th- the disparities that we see between um, between opportunities based on someone's ethnic background, someone's um, uh, racial background. Or even the level of inclusion that some people are uh, feel based on their uh, country of original origin, um, right here, more more in the suburban areas. Mm-hmm. So th- the conversation, you know, people are people are talking about this, but kind of back to your earlier question, it's it's not specific to the that tangible thing of the monuments. It's more looking at the larger view of. What does our society look like now and how can we make it better for all people? But that starts with understanding and recognizing that there are differences, that there are disparities in, um, you know, what we're seeing in in our school systems and in our um, in our communities. Full disclosure, we're in studio with Abigail Spanberger, Democratic challenger for the U.S. Congress's 7th District of Central Virginia, which is predominantly in the middle of the state from Culpeper to Nottoway. It's a huge trophy if the Dems could flip it. It's been held by Republicans since 1971. It's it's currently held by Dave Bratt. Prior to that, Eric Cantor, uh, Congressman Bliley. Uh, but this is perceived to potentially be a blue wave possibility year. And I want to get to that. Suppose uh, the Dems do pull it off, Pelosi and company and all of these leaders in the House what is the first thing kind of on their agenda, uh, you know, January 19th after the interregnum? What do they roll up their sleeves and do? Is it is it chiefly about uh, obstructing Trump? Is it about investigating Trump? Is it about undoing certain policies? Have, have you know, you've been getting calls about this? Is there any sort of, of consensus or foment behind it that the first thing I'm going to do <laughs> in January of 2019 yeah. is X, Y, Z? Uh, no, is the answer. Um, you know, I, I think that across the board, what 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 people are focused on, what I'm focused on is what are the needs of our district? How can we bring better leadership to Washington? How can we better represent here this this district, the seventh district? Um, and and I have talked to other candidates who are running in districts across the country, and and that is their priority as well. Um, you know, what the Democratic Party may or may not pursue as its first agenda items in in January of 2019, I'm just not sure. You know, the Democratic Party is focused on recognizing that that um, that that there are many people in this country who are feeling decreased economic opportunity, whose wages are not keeping up with the cost of living. Um, and so among the things that I do think many of us, when elected, will want to address would be the issues most heartily related to everybody's day-to-day, which is, am I fearful for my health because my health insurance coverage isn't meeting what I need it to do or I can't afford health insurance coverage? Um, and meeting people's needs to, you know, have job opportunities. But have... how, much, how much of it is out there is is defensive versus offensive, i.e., do people want you chiefly thwarting uh, Trump in 2019 or chiefly creating something? Because, again, this is a pattern we've seen before. If Hillary Clinton pulled it off last yeah. year, you'd see an enormous red wave. It's, it's yep. kind of a reflexive thing that happens. It's true. There isn't this spirit of kind of helping people. I remember when Obama took the oath of office, it was Mitch McConnell who said our first job is to block this guy, is to make sure he's a first-term president. There isn't this spirit of comedy or, or let's get stuff done. It's kind of a, a tactical, it's a sport thing. Yeah, Um you know, for me, in in a district like ours, I mean, we are going to win this district when people feel like they're voting for something, when people feel and and when, you know, it's incumbent on me to make sure that people are engaged in this process and understand why it is that I'm running and and what it is that's important to, to me as a candidate. Um, and, and I think that that's similar across the country. There are certainly a lot of candidates who are running against Trump. Um, and 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 that's what they're making their congressional race about. That is not my goal, um, and and that is not my priority. My priority is to be 
an engaged member of Congress and working towards um, writing legislation and passing legislation that's going to help the American people um, make their lives better, be it through improving our educational system, securing um, our country, in prioritizing national security in a way that's effective, um, ensuring that our health care program is stable and not um, rising in costs exponentially year after year, um, and, and making sure that our economy is strong and people have job opportunities and, and the right sort of educational background to be able to move into those opportunities. So those are those are the things that I'm focused on. Those are the things that when elected, I want to be a part of, um, you know, reaching those goals. There are certainly people who are primarily motivated out of um, a, a negative feelings towards our current president. Um, but but that's really not my priority. I'm not running against Trump. I'm running to represent this district. Mm. Talk to me, if you can, about the African-American vote. This was put into sharp relief after what we saw in Alabama when the Republicans lost the old Jeff Sessions seat. Um, that was a significant part, especially African-American women stepping forth. Um, that that kind of shows the power of the get out the vote message. Maybe Hillary Clinton wasn't as strong with the black vote as other candidates were. Um, are there are there certain corridors of outreach that um, you find are are helpful with this? Well, I think it's also important, even looking at the twenty seventeen elections, exit polling shows that um, the African American vote was incredibly strong. Um, in in helping with our statewide success, in addition to younger millennial voters. And, you know, it is absolutely important that we recognize all of the the voting groups that exist within our district. Um, and and for me, I think one of the things that I've found most interesting is I have talked to African-American voters who um, express a lot of concern with the fact that Democrats view them as reliable voters. And then when it's not an election year, uh, that's when the relationship kind of ends and pauses until there's another election. And so for me, I have made it a priority to get out um, and into various different communities, be it, um, uh, you know, minority communities, uh, cultural communities, and make my be there to you know, get to know people, make my presence known, um, and listen to people. Because there are, again, you know, community to community, different concerns that impact um, that impact communities differently. And so being present and just listening um, and making myself accessible to people who want to ask me questions, who want to tell what their concerns are, that's been uh, a, a strong priority for, for me. And particularly, you know, in, in our district, that includes um, members of the African-American community and, and, and making sure that I'm understanding, you know, we're, we're all Americans. We have the same goals and the same priorities, but community to community, there are, um, you know, things that are more prevalent and, and more heavily on people's minds. And, you know, particularly when we see some of the rhetoric coming out of the white house that like yesterday, that, that really was just indefensible, um, and 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 racist in 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 the way that it um, segregated various um, you know immigrant populations. I think it's really truly important for people to be present and to listen, um, and and to say that I see you as a constituent that I want to serve, and that starts with me listening to what your concerns are. And finally, Abigail, in the few minutes we have left, I mean, we can't really ignore the elephant in the room, the Me Too movement, whether mm -hmm. you're talking about the Golden Globes, things that have been happening in Hollywood, um, in journalism, in big media, on Wall Street, uh, the, the Me Too movement here. Uh, yes. We saw that, was it the governor of Missouri uh, most recently. Uh, to what extent has that been playing into your um, voter outreach? I mean, you are uh, a, a mother, a wife, a person who has has you know probably dealt with abuses of power throughout your career. Are people approaching you to it? Is there any way to kind of uh, um, parlay it into mobilizing the vote? In terms of parlaying it into mobilizing the vote, I don't think so. But you know, my perspective is has been informed by the fact that I'm I'm a woman, I'm a mother, I am a wife, I am, you know, I've worked in in very male dominated fields for the majority of my career, 
And so for me, the perspective that I see is there are a lot of women who are inclined to use their voice now. And whether that be the voice as part of a, their voice, using their voice as part of the Me Too mov- movement to discuss uh, behavior that they've seen or just using their power as a voter and as a community member. Um, I, I think the level of engagement that we've seen from women voters, um, the level of activism within um, communities is is undeniable. And I think it's motivated by the fact that they've We've always had incredible women within our communities and and, and men as well um, as driving forces behind so many different things, but maybe not focused in politics. And part of what we've seen with the shift since the the election in 2016 and now increasingly so with the Me Too movement is there's a certain strength in using our voice in a political term. There's a certain strength that people are finding in speaking out to related to what's important to them. Um, and, and I, in terms of how that directly impacts my campaign, I don't know that it does, but I'm certainly excited by the the amount of activism and excitement related to our election. And, and you know, frankly, seeing parents who will bring their daughters up to me to meet me and to talk about my campaign you know, I, I don't know if that was happening before this cultural shift that we're seeing, before this this tide of, that's turning with the Me Too movement. Um, but it, but it's certainly incredibly heartening and incredibly humbling, and um, and and an exciting thing to be a part of. Close us out. What should we be watching? Uh, what's next for you? You have a, a pretty crowded primary coming up, no? Yes. Um, well, you know, things are exciting. We're continuing to mobilize a campaign that we believe will be. Bi- strong enough to beat our incumbent come November. So we are working on um, continuing to engage our volunteers, get across the district, meet as many people as we can, and just be present and listen um, and, and make sure that people understand what it is that I stand for, who I am as a person. And it's been an incredible experience. And so I hope that your listeners will go to our website. Uh, we'll learn a little bit more about me. I'm Abigail Spanberger and ideally attend one of our community events in the future. It's, um, you know, this is the shift that we're seeing towards 2018, where we have candidates who have never thought they'd run before, who are wholly invested in bringing change to their communities in Washington. And, um, you know, I'm proud to be a part of that. Abigail Spanberger, Democratic challenger for the 7th District of Virginia. Um, Good luck to you. Thank you. Uh, We'll be curious. I mean, would you be my congresswoman? I'd live by the University of Richmond. It depends on exactly where you live. I mean, this is a place (laughs) the districts are drawn in such a crazy fashion. Yes, but you could go to my website and actually type in your address to determine because you are not the only person who is right along the line. The correct answer would have been, I might have been in 2012 or 2013. (laughs) By June, I might be again. By November, likely not. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me, Robin. I appreciate it. Full disclosure, listen to us on NPR One and on iTunes at FullDRadio.com. Our engineer, a good, good man, is the venerable John Valentine. You can find us on Twitter at FullDRadio and Facebook.com slash FullDRadio. Hey, we are bipartisan, big tent, American man on the street pork barrelers. I'm Robin Farzad. Back with you next week. Hey.